Let us pray. Oh, Father, we know the story of Jesus and his love, of coming for the outcast, of coming for the least and the lost, and coming for each of us just as we are. And yet so often we spend a great deal of time tearing down everyone else that is not just like us. So as we come to seriously consider your word this day, Lord, pray that you might give us malleable hearts so that we can be transformed by the grace we received in Jesus and more importantly transform the lives of others around us with that same grace. These things I ask and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I think that some of the best sermons always begin at the Targets. If not the Targets, the Walmarts, the Giants, or the Wises. This one begins at the Targets uh, a few weeks ago. And you know, one of the things I'm really going to miss about living here is the fact that we have lived in Snyder County for 14 years. So it's getting to where it's difficult not to go somewhere and see somebody you know. Both people you like to see and people you don't. Oh, I heard. Sorry. Uh, anyways, uh, there was a dear lady from my last church in Paxtonville. Um, and uh, just one of the things I love about her, there's two things I loved about her. Um, she's a Reformed Baptist. In other words, uh, I got her to become Methodist. Um, and, uh, of course, I have a soft spot in my heart for Baptists everywhere because most of my family is Southern Baptist. And, um, and she's from the South. And uh, so we just have a special relationship, a special connection. And I was there picking up a, a prescription or something, and uh, she heard my voice from the aisle over, and she came over to give me a hard time. Now, she's just a little lady, uh, but she came over to give me a hard time, and I was so happy to see her. And, and we talked, uh, talked about the move, talked about, talked about the pandemic, because I hadn't seen her in a while. So, you know, last time I saw her was probably pre-pandemic. And as we got to talking, we got to talking about how critical everyone seems to be right now. You know what I mean? Like everybody's just so angry and so harsh and so critical. And, and, and I, said, I said to her, I said, you know, it's as if the spirit of criticism has come to rest upon our land. She said, That's exactly what I would call it. And I said, thank you. I think I have a sermon there. (laughs) The spirit of criticism or a critical nature. I think the spirit of criticism is a comorbidity. If you don't know what a comorbidity is, you should know what this is. Because if you have one health condition, it could lead to others, right? A comorbidity is the simultaneous presence of two or more diseases, um, perhaps in your body or, or elsewhere. I think that the, um, that the COVID-19 pandemic actually has several comorbidities. Um, but I think one of them is the pandemic of criticism. It is. I think one, one of the comorbid pandemics with COVID-19 is this pandemic of criticism. I really do think a spirit of criticism has descended upon our world and descended upon our nation, our state, our communities, and, and even our churches and our congregations. Spirit of criticism. Now, the spirit of criticism is much different than offering constructive criticism. Okay? You know, constructive criticism is typically sought by one person from another. In other words, it's unsolicited. Like, so, you know, today, when, when we get home after church, I, I will look at Amy sometime over lunch, and I'll go, okay, so how was the sermon today? And I'm looking for her honest, gentle feedback. Right? That's constructive criticism. Constructive criticism seeks to build up another person so that he or she can improve upon something that they desire to improve upon. That's constructive criticism. Remember, it's typically solicited. 
by one to another. But a critical spirit seeks to find fault in a person or a situation and then tear that person or situation down. A critical spirit seeks the negative in order to dwell on it. A person with a critical spirit often excels at gossiping and slandering. And sadly, they almost never know they're doing it. Something is always wrong with other people. Everyone is always in need of fixing. The critical spirit, when questioned by, about his or her criticism, might respond with something like, well, that's just the way I am. Or, that's the truth, sorry if you can't handle it. The spirit of criticism has been multiplied exponentially through the power of social media. Social media has empowered millions of people to critically harass others while never having to be accountable in another's physical presence. Things are written on social media that people would never ever say to another person. Or at least that's the way it used to be. By the way, just because I don't comment on your Facebook post doesn't mean that I don't see them. It means I don't want to get drawn into the toxicity of Facebook drama. And please, 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 just as an aside, please consider not sharing political rhetoric regularly on your page. I mean, it's one thing if it's your thought, but if it's somebody else's thought with a picture and something stupid in it, why, why are you doing that? Here's what's concerning about that. See, political rhetoric often gets in bed with Christianity and then speaks as though its political position has the authority and the backing of God Almighty. And among the many things that are scary about that, one of the scariest is that you or your repost assumes that all other Christians think like you do. Except they don't. And because they don't, your post has said that they are not Christian. And then you've condemned them to hell. In my own house, we've seen Facebook posts from friends that have literally damned me or my wife or both of us at the same time and even the dog to hell. Except they don't know they've damned me to hell because they assume I think like they do. But if we were having an in-person conversation on the same topic, I highly doubt you would tell me I'm going to hell. You might. That's how angry people are today. Social media has become so toxically hypercritical that I rarely even post good things or even slightly amusing things or dare I say the bizarre incidental things that come to my mind on a regular basis. See, I used to post these stupid things all the time, but now I don't because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that someone is going to find fault with what I posted and then start a fight on my post and then others will get in on the fight and then different fights will take place on the post that I posted about this, but then it'll become something else and everybody just wanting to fight. I want to show you an incidental picture that prompted my almost post a couple of weeks ago. Now what about this picture is controversial? What about this picture makes you go, let's criticize that? Other than the fact that I use M&T Bank, don't judge me. I go every morning, see, every morning I check. I'm one of those people, I check the balances, I want to make sure nobody's stolen my money overnight, whatever, that's just who I am. But here's what I was going, here's what I was going to post. I actually had it written out. I was going to post this with a picture. And it was just going to say, I'm getting ready to sound really old with this statement. I'm not sure when parents became so young. 
When did that happen? Because like I'm looking at myself in a mirror and there's some age happening. But then I look at some of our preschool parents and I'm like, y'all, right? These people are young. I don't know how these young people keep having babies. Well, I have an idea. But you know what I mean? (laughs) Parents are getting younger. Or, Randy, you're getting older. I didn't post that. I deleted what I was writing and just closed up Facebook. Why? Because I thought someone would find fault with something in it and then start criticizing. I don't have time for that. Many people are looking for the negative, even when there's nothing negative there. And they're doing that because they want to hurt others, because they're hurting themselves. Oh, they'd never say, I want to hurt others, but they're hurting so badly on the inside, they're finding ways to hurt others. Friends, that is really what the spirit of criticism is doing. The person who has been overcome by the spirit of criticism is often hurting so badly on the inside that they transfer that hurt onto others with criticism because it is easier to address the sawdust in someone else's eye than the plank in your own. Brothers and sisters, and Randy Bennett included, I think we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to turn around. We need to turn around and come back to Jesus with this. The world is hurting. The world is angry. And people are being really mean to one another. And the church, friends, the church is presently part of that culture. Which means we are failing to live counterculturally. And following Jesus is meant to be countercultural. We're not meant to look, sound, and act like the world. We are meant to be the beloved community of Christ. We're meant to be the place where all are welcomed, a safe sanctuary where none are harshly criticized. Y'all remember when Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people. There is nothing salty about openly criticizing everyone and everything, every chance we get. Including and especially on Facebook. And I'll tell you, if the spirit of criticism is Christianity, then it's time to deconstruct Christianity. How can we Christians be countercultural if our critical nature and our exclusivity are toxic, if not more toxic, than mainstream culture? We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be the light of Jesus on the hill, out in the community, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the TikToks, or wherever else our physical presence or cyber presence may dwell. (laughs) Now, you want to know what's ironic about having arrived at this place in the sermon? What is ironic is how critical I've been of the spirit of criticism. Here's the thing. I know at times that I have been swept up just as many of you have in the spirit of criticism. And I don't want that for my life. I don't want that for my life. I don't want that for my family. I don't want to be modeling that for my children. And I know at times I have, and that's just, I don't want to do that. And I I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you either. Listen, Christ community, you've undergone more change than most during this pandemic. Like, I don't know of any other church in the conference that 
that did like for the rest of my life I'm gonna be saying, Yeah, we built a church during the pandemic. I don't I don't know anything else to say about you other than that. You're the people that build churches in pandemics and, and go back to Uganda after you've been attacked. You're 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 those people, right? I Man, that's hardcore. You're like like tough, white. Like there's people that follow Jesus and there's people getting in the mud with Jesus, like Christ community and people getting in the mud with Jesus kind of thing. Like for the rest of my life, that's what I'm going to say. These these are my witnesses of your faith. You have undergone more change than most in this pandemic. You've been displaced only to come back and find everything different. There's been a lot of change and you're getting ready to undergo another change. This time a pastoral change. That's a lot of change. Change means there's a loss of control. And losing control makes everybody and their mama uncomfortable. Let's just be real about that. And when people are uncomfortable, what are they apt to do? Criticize. And when they criticize, they hurt others, they hurt themselves, and they hurt the very heart of Jesus. So now that I've made this case for Criticism and a critical nature. How do we overcome the spirit of criticism? How do we overcome it? Because we're overcomers, right? So how do we overcome it? I'm going to give you the three points first, and then I'm going to unpack them. You ready? Hope you all brought a lunch today. It's going to be a while. No, it won't be that much longer. Number one, take every thought captive. Take every thought captive. Every thought captive. Two, choose honoring over humility. I put of up there, and I'm not sure why. Choose honoring over humility or humiliating. Honoring over humiliating. And number three, choose encouragement over embarrassment. Take every thought captive, choose honoring over humiliating, and choose encouragement over embarrassment. So let me unpack that first one first. Take every thought captive. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take it captive. Just like when we choose to follow Jesus, we become a prisoner of his grace, freed for joyful obedience. So too are we to take captive those thoughts that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God or loving others into it or loving our brothers and sisters. We are to take those thoughts captive. If your first thought about a person is one of their faults, then take that thought captive. Hear that again. If your first thought about someone else is one of their faults, take that thought captive. And it's especially easy, y'all, to find fault with others who have hurt your feelings. If you're finding fault, take that thought captive and then intentionally, listen, intentionally look for something that is positive instead of negative, and then speak that positivity into the world. Lord knows ain't enough positive things being spoken out there, right? Who is in charge of your thoughts? Who's in charge of your thoughts? You are! (laughs) That's right, you're in charge of your thoughts. You can change your thoughts if you don't like them. And if you can change your thoughts, then you can change your feelings. And if you can change your feelings, then you can change your behavior. But often, feelings control thoughts, and behavior just goes haywire. And if you ask the Holy Spirit to help you take your thoughts captive, to take your thoughts prisoner, to show your thoughts who's the boss, through God's Spirit, He will surely win over a spirit of criticism. 
the Holy Spirit will win over the spirit of criticism any day and every day. Jesus died on the cross for just those kinds of things. Take every thought captive. Say it with me. Take every thought captive. Uh-huh. If you get nothing else today, just walk out of here. I, I had, listen, if I had time I was going to do it, I don't. I, had this, I, had, I have an idea for a series, and it's all about taking thoughts captive. Take every thought captive. Number two, choose honoring over humiliating. Paul writes, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now listen, I want you to know that it is okay and even healthy to be angry with others. Do you know that? Anger is one of the many emotions with which God has graced us. It is okay to be in conflict with other people as long as the conflict is healthy. But what often happens with anger and with conflict is that we do not address it. When we do not address it, the anger will fester and become bitterness, and then criticism will commence along with gossip and slander. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But what I've noticed during this age of the spirit of criticism is that people are walking around perpetually angry, always speaking, and never listening. The result is we would rather humiliate each other than to honor each other. This is why Paul says to be devoted to one another, especially when you're angry with each other. You can show your devotion to another person by honoring them above yourselves. And so what does that mean to honor someone? Well, it's also translated as respect, reverence, and esteem for that same Greek word. Why is it important to honor each other? The image of God. That's why. We honor each other because we are each created in the image of God. Every person is created in the image of God. So our honoring of another person is our expression of thanks and our reverence to God. This is how we show respect to God and to others by honoring them. Because every person is intrinsically valuable for no other reason than they exist. good does it do to humiliate somebody when you can honor them for being an image bearer of the Almighty? The last way I think that we can overcome a critical spirit is when we choose encouragement over embarrassment. We choose encouragement over embarrassment. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, be patient with everyone, be patient with everyone, be patient with everyone. Be, oh, it's like a record. I got stuck there. Sorry. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Do you know what the spirit of criticism loves? Oh, it loves it. Oh, it loves, love, love. The spirit of criticism loves it when we criticize our leaders. Oh, that just sets the pitter-patter heart of the spirit of criticism ablaze. As a younger man and a younger leader, I think I might have been gifted as a criticizer of leaders. I often criticize my leaders or anybody who might have been in charge of an important project that I was not in charge of. And I often use they to refer to those I criticize. You ever use they? Oh, they this, right? My favorite they to criticize was the annual conference. 
right? See, when we use a they, we objectify others. We don't remember that they are people. We objectify them. They, the annual conference, they, they don't understand. They hand down all this pointless, stupid paperwork. They don't get what it's like to be in the local church. You know the drill. You probably use that they to criticize somebody too, right? Then one day I realized, they is me. I am a full member of the annual conference. (laughs) They is me. Therefore, any criticism I might say about the annual conference, I'm saying about myself. (laughs) Duh. And that's just embarrassing. Because I'm speaking poorly of the whole family. Myself included. The same might be said of our congregation. It's embarrassing when you criticize any aspect of the congregation to which you belong because when you do, you are speaking poorly of yourself. And Lord knows everybody else out there is speaking poorly of one another. Why would the beloved community ever do that? So I would say practice encouragement instead with the five to one ratio. You familiar with the five to one ratio? Oh, he's going to use some sort of new age good feel stuff. No, it's not. According to researcher John Gottman, successful relationships practice the five one ratio. The marriages that make it practice five one. You see, for every every one negative thing spoken, five positive things are spoken to offset the negative. So think about that. It takes five positive things to offset one negative. Five. Five positive things spoken to offset one negative thing spoken. Scientifically, successful relationships that are lasting are the ones where more encouragement is present than criticism. So what if... You just gave it a shot. What if... You don't speak another critical word about a person, place, or thing until you speak five encouraging words. Or if you speak that one negative, can you speak five positives right then and there? If you start to beat up on yourself with the spirit of criticism, can you say, okay, we'll stop at one, and i got to come up with five things that are good about me? Friends, someone in America needs to start overcoming the spirit of criticism. And we cannot depend upon the world to do that. We've got to model for the world what that looks like. So let's overcome that critical nature. Because it's not who we are in Jesus Christ. It's not who we're meant to be. And it's not who the world's supposed to see in us. And that's God's word. Seriously consider this safe for the Church of Christ community. For those joining us online. All thanks and praise be to the God who loves us so much. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, how thankful we are that you thought of us. That you love the world so much that you sent your one and only Son. How thankful we are that by grace through faith in Jesus we can be in that forever relationship with you. And how thankful we are that it's not just about getting us into heaven, but about heaven getting into us now so that we might learn to love as you have loved and live out that love in the world and in the life in which we are living. And so, Father, as we come once again to seriously consider your story, I pray that you give us hearts that are ready to be transformed by the power of the resurrection and live out a resurrected faith. Be with us now. These things I ask and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Historicity. Woo, I made the pulpit move. That right there is a fancy word, isn't it? Historicity. Historicity. Historicity means the historical authenticity of persons and or events, or both. In other words, a a person's life or an event that took place can be historically verified. 
as fact through both primary and secondary sources. So let's consider for a moment uh, this as an illustration, the historicity of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Who in this room, by a show of hands, was alive on July 20th, 1969? For those of you that rose your, uh, rose your hands, raised your hands, um, th- did you see the moon landing take place on television? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Saw it with my own eyes. Saw it with your own eyes, yeah. That's, that's catchy. That ought to be in a sermon somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, if that's the case, then that makes you a primary source for the historicity of the Apollo 11 moon landing. You, along with many other Americans, as well as NASA, etc., all y'all, okay, you are primary sources to verify the authenticity of the moon landing. And in addition to you, of course, there are what we would call secondary sources that document the historicity of the moon landing, like history books and newspapers. So here's the question. Did the moon landing actually take place? Because I wasn't alive. I I didn't see it. Not only that, but the last moon landing, according to secondary sources, took place on December, uh, in December of 1972 with Apollo 17. And 1972 was still four years before I was born. So because I didn't see it, how do I know that it actually took place? Unless, of course, I choose to trust the primary and secondary sources. If I'm being honest with you, I think human beings landing on the moon is almost unbelievable. Right? I mean, seriously, come on. The moon? I mean, we, can't, we can't even solve the problem of cancer. Right? We, we can't even pe- you know, keep people alive who get a virus. So how can we possibly land on the moon? Really? Landing on the moon is almost unbelievable. Except many of you saw it take place. Your eyewitness account is a primary source of verification. Additionally, multiple reliable secondary sources all agree that several moon landings took place between 1969 and 1972, even though I wasn't alive. I suppose it was indeed one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. There are always going to be people who doubt that the moon landing took place, especially the farther away from we get from the event. You ever notice that? There's all sorts of hoax and conspiracy theories and stuff out there on the internet. There's always going to believe, be people who believe there's some government conspiracy to fabricate the moon landing that actually took place or another government's conspiracies for something else or blah, 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 you know. Killing me. But the vast majority of the world has accepted that humans landing on the moon is an historical fact, right? Friends, I share this with you because I believe the world agrees upon the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth, right? The world agrees that Jesus was a Jewish man from Nazareth. The world agrees that he was a carpenter or a craftsman or, you know, in the Greek, a tecton, somebody who worked with his hands. They believe he was a craftsman who turned teacher. The world believes he had a following of disciples. The world believes he was crucified and died a criminal's death. And the world also agrees that Jesus' life and teachings, from his life and teachings, a world religion was born that presently 31% of the world's population follows. That's 2.382 billion people consider themselves Christian in some form which means that Christianity is the world's largest religion. Not too shabby. Historicity, the historical authenticity of a person 
or an event. I don't think the historicity of Jesus, the person, is in question. What I think is, is this. The world disagrees with the historicity of his resurrection. No one argues that Jesus didn't exist. The world struggles with the historicity of resurrection. You see, from the world's perspective, both past and present, it's impossible to verify the authenticity of Jesus' resurrection. The world says, resurrection? Impossible! Of course, at one time the world would have said, walking on the moon? (laughs) Impossible! Here's a question worth considering. Why would a third of the world's population follow Jesus if they didn't believe the historicity of the resurrection? Seriously. If the resurrection didn't happen, what's the point of being a Christian? Why would we give up our time, our talent, and our treasure for a man that died 2,000 years ago if he wasn't resurrected? Y'all, that's just silly. I mean, if that's the case, then I threw away a promising career by becoming a pastor. I could have gotten my doctorate. I could have become a college choral director. I could have spent my life making beautiful music with talented young adults who wanted to be in my choir and whom I could throw out whenever I wanted to or give an F for missing a single rehearsal things I did when I had my own college choir. Instead, I decided to go further into debt by going to seminary. Not only that, I permanently damaged my singing voice by leading singing and worship in many different churches and settings, oftentimes with poor acoustics. Y'all, I could have stayed down south. I could have owned my own home. I could have seen my family more than once or twice a year. And I could have eaten endless amounts of southern barbecue. I also could not have misled countless people into denying themselves the things they want. Y'all, seriously, think about all the things you have given up here in this congregation. Let's just name one. Like the pit crew for Christ and how they've recruited all these other people into, into doing a ministry with them, you know, once or twice. But, but think about that. For, from April to October, they give up every Saturday of their lives. Or how about this newly renovated facility? Most of us have given up some money to sit in this room or to watch worship in this new room from home on a brand new camera system. Think about all that time and talent and treasure that we have absolutely wasted. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't take place. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of faith. Everything Christians believe, our worldview, our operating system, how we find meaning and purpose, the way we live, the way we raise our families, it all hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Apostle Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul went on to write four verses later, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied the more than all other people. Why? Because we have thrown our lives away following a dead man that never resurrected. No one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ because they think he was an enlightened teacher. No one becomes a follower of Jesus because they want to learn how to turn the other cheek. That sounds like fun. 
No one becomes a follower of Jesus because they want to learn how it is that you can love another more than yourself. No one becomes a Christian because they want to learn a set of principles to to live a better life. No. Nobody becomes a Christian for those things. People become believers of Jesus because they believe he resurrected from the dead. Then because of the resurrection, they follow Jesus' teachings and learn how to love and live sacrificially. Christianity completely, y'all, completely depends upon the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity, just mass stupidity on a epic scale. And by A, I mean an. The entire world, all one-third of us that believe in Jesus, just goofy. So I understand, I do, how the resurrection is almost unbelievable. In fact, even when the resurrected Jesus came and stood among his disciples, they were in disbelief. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. Why does Jesus say that? He always says that when people are what? Scared. Ah! They were startled and frightened and literally stupefied thinking they saw a ghost. You know, sometimes our senses can play tricks on us, right? You know, the house is dark. We think you see something moving in the corner. It's a shadow person. I don't know. Maybe the disciples just wanted to see Jesus so badly alive that, 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 that they thought maybe they were seeing a ghost. But if that were the case, then wouldn't sharing this part of the story make them look foolish? Why would they share this part of the story if it's not true? Why would they intentionally look foolish so that almost 2,000 years later in a place called Pennsylvania, we could be considering their foolishness? See, that's why I think the Gospels as a primary historical source for the resurrection of Jesus Christ are valid. Because the Gospels include all the thoughts and feelings and reactions of the eyewitnesses, including and especially the embarrassing ones. As we see in today's lesson, the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus with their eyes. They heard him with their ears, but their hearts did not believe it was Jesus. And of course, Jesus knew their doubts, right? He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Minds, this word in the Greek is the word cardia, it's heart. At this time, this idea of cardia is the center of human life. See, in order to fully digest an event that we are witnessing with our hearts, our minds must be fully convinced of the truth of what it is we're seeing. When we believe something in our hearts, we believe it because we know that 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 it's true. Y'all, that's why Jesus has given us five senses. The resurrected Christ appeared to the disciples and he spoke. With their eyes, they saw him. With their ears, they heard him. But with their hearts, they did not yet believe. To the disciples, the resurrection of Jesus was almost unbelievable. Except they touched him. Look at my hands and feet, Jesus said. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have Flesh and bones, as you see, I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, I love that part, they were disbelieving for joy. They still did not believe, but for joy and amazement, right? Think about that. You ever seen something that is so hard to grasp all in one sitting that you just smile from ear to ear? That you just cry tears of joy? Like there has never been anything in my life, nothing for the, I'm going to say for the rest of my days, until that day I'd see Jesus face to face, nothing will be more impactful to me of what it means to disbelieve for joy than seeing my children born. Right? And just seeing these creatures come out, apparently I'm responsible for them now, and I can't stop my eyes from just 
watering and running down my face, uh, disbelieving for joy. Having added the sense of touch to sight and sound, the disciples were still in disbelief, but now they're disbelieving for joy. Now they're strangely disbelieving for joy. And in the midst of their disbelieving for joy, Jesus asked them, what does he ask them? He says, y'all got anything to eat? I gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He ate it in their presence, y'all. It's almost unbelievable, except Jesus stood among them and he ate. He ate. And while the text doesn't tell us anything about the sense of smell, smell and taste are two senses that are intrinsically linked, right? I mean, we need to only consider the COVID-19 virus, to understand the impact of taste and smell upon how we experience the world. My wife still can't smell and taste certain things, and she and, and the kids had COVID back in December. Still can't taste and smell certain things. Have y'all seen that thing where people are like charring the outside of an orange with a torch, and then they're cutting it open, and if you eat the inside of that orange, that's going to bring your taste and your smell back? Have you seen that? I've been taught, trying to talk Amy into doing that for months. She will not allow me to burn an orange. But I have a torch, and I'm ready to give it a shot. So if you would put in a good word with her, that would be fabulous. With their noses, the disciples had smelled the broiled fish. With their tongues, they had tasted the broiled fish. They knew with their eyes and ears and touch and taste and smell that the fish was real because they themselves were eating it. Jesus' resurrection was almost unbelievable, except Jesus utilized every human sense to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was no longer dead and very much alive. And in that perplexingly holy moment, with the resurrected Jesus standing in their midst and eating their broiled fish, the disciples in the upper room believed. Their minds were convinced of the truth of their witness, and their hearts became warm with the blood of the Lamb. Now the resurrected Jesus taught his newly resurrected believers Notice that the first thing that Jesus did when he entered the room was to prove his resurrection. Jesus didn't immediately begin teaching. First, he proved his resurrection. First, he offered the gift of faith. Then he offered the gift of understanding. You see, faith always precedes understanding. That's a doctrinal thing. In other words, this is like a bedrock of Christianity. If you don't or aren't aware of this, you should know this theological thought. Faith always precedes understanding. If you want the answers to all of life's toughest questions, you must first accept the grace of faith. Then the grace of understanding will follow, and it won't follow in your timeline. It will follow in the Lord's timeline. The resurrection of Jesus was just almost unbelievable, except after he ate fish, he sat there among them and taught. And it says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Wow. Who better, right? Who better to teach the words of scripture than God's word in the flesh? If the resurrection of Jesus wasn't real, then why, friends, is Jesus still teaching in this moment? Why is Jesus still opening minds to understand the scriptures? Our senses, friends, continue to verify the resurrection. Our eyes see Jesus in the Bible. Our eyes see Jesus in worship. And we see Jesus in our service to others and their ministry and service to us. Our ears still hear Jesus when his story is proclaimed. His hymns are sung or his prayers are prayed and his witness is shared. Our senses of smell and taste and touch, 
These still reveal Jesus' resurrection when we smell the broken bread, when we taste the grapes of the cup that he has poured, and touch our broken world with Jesus' healing hands. And death? There's no community on the face of this earth that understands death and does death the way Jesus' followers do death. As Luke ends his gospel account, he does so with the beginning of the books of, book of Acts in mind. Y'all familiar with that? Book of Acts. For the continuation of the story of the resurrection witnesses will continue when that promised Holy Spirit arrives and Jesus continues expanding his ministry. Luke writes, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. The disciples worshipped what they knew to be absolutely true. It was not the ghost of Jesus they were worshipping. It was not the ghost of Jesus they were worshiping. It was not a set of religious principles they were worshiping. It was a person. A person they saw, they heard, they touched, and they ate with. A person who gave them faith and taught them to understand it. A person who was once dead and was alive to never die again. A person who proved once and for all that good has the final triumph over evil. And a person who is our Lord and our God, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Landing on the moon is almost unbelievable, except it happened. And I choose to believe the sources that authenticate it's happening. Even if I wasn't alive at the time that it happened. The resurrection of Jesus, that's almost unbelievable, except it happened. And I choose to believe the sources that authenticate its happening as well. And thanks be to God, I'm in good company with at least a third of the world's population. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.